Wow, it's great to, to sing that song, and it's uh, almost hard to get all the words across your lips to say it actually and to mean it and to think it through, but when our focus is on the Lord, that's where our confidence is. Awe changes everything. Awe. A little three-lettered word carrying with it repercussions that will reach far beyond this life. Awe may also be known as worship, wonder, fear, and honor. In his little yet loaded piece of literature, Paul Tripp writes of this awe. In fact, that's the title of his book, Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. Among other pithy statements, he says, I love the visual arts. I love great music. I love food of all kinds. Suddenly, everyone's favorite author is Paul Tripp. (laughs) A beautiful, well-executed painting leaves me in awe. A band's well-constructed album leaves me amazed and wanting more. The memory of tasting of a tasting menu at a great restaurant leaves me wanting to recreate dishes and, and revisit the establishment. None of these things are wrong in themselves. God intended us to be in awe of his creation. But that awe cannot and should not be an end in itself. He goes on to say in the beginning of this book, I wrote this book for me because I am aware that I need to spend more time gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I need to put my heart in a place where it can once again be in awe of the grandeur of God that reaches far beyond the bounds of the, the, the most ex- expressive words in the human vocabulary. Vocabulary. I need awe of him to recapture, refocus, and redirect my heart again and again. And I need to remember that the war for the awe of my heart still wages inside of me. I need to examine what kind of awe shapes my thoughts, desires, words, choices, and actions in the situations and relationships that make up my everyday life. I was wired for awe, that awe of something that sits at the bottom of everything I say and do, but I wasn't just wired for awe, I was wired for awe of God. No other awe satisfies the soul. No other awe can give my heart the peace, rest, and security that it seeks. I feel like that's exactly right. It connects with me. It resonates on a, on a deep level with me because I believe what he's saying rings with truth. Each one of us was, was wired, put together from the beginning for this all-satisfying awe in God. That's our design. That's how we have been put together. But sadly, each one of us 
have exchanged an awe of God for an awe of self. And we've swapped that around, and that's called sin. So when we're talking about the sin problem, it's an awe problem first. To restore our awe and place it back in the right place, God did something. He initiated. He reached out to us to change something at that heart level. He did something incredible. He knew that this was the biggest problem. And the way to capture our awe again was to send what was most beautiful. To to send before our eyes and our ears what was most satisfying, what was most precious to him and was most costly to him, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. And it's there by faith in that man, that God-man, Jesus Christ, that the soul finds its awe of God in the right place, restored. That awe of God draws us to him and and compels us to keep our eyes on him. And this morning, that's what I want to do with all of you. I want to take everybody here, gathered here, and I want to increase our awe by looking into Scripture. And I want to look to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, to increase our awe of God, awaken maybe our awe for God. To do so, we'll observe these three realms of God's supremacy, God being supreme, and these three different realms that show His glory. And I want for each of us to walk out of here today, if this is not too much to desire, walk out of here today just going, man, God is amazing. Like, wow. Just, just to have that expression, that response of just, wow, God is amazing. I don't think that's too much to desire this morning. I think we should all aim for that. I think we should all desire that. And I think going through this psalm, it will accomplish that. As you turn there in the Psalms with me, let me just say a few words about the Psalms. Uh, Not only are the Psalms known for some of the best written poetry of all time, they're also packed with some of the richest theology of all time, even in the Scriptures themselves. If you're looking into the 66 books of the Bible and you're wanting a theology of God and of man and a theology of sin and, and, and uh, angels and, and all of these things, salvation, the book of Psalms, it increases volumes of information of our theology And so it is helpful to go there to not only be touched in the mind, but touched in the heart. That's what the Psalms do. They they reach us in a way that it it so quickly connects with us in a deep way, in a real way, in a powerful way. They were originally written and collected and, and sung among the Hebrew people of God, the Hebrew hymnal, as it were, um, and in the land of Israel. But by the inspiration of the Holy Scripture, we have them preserved for us as well. So these are timeless words and truths that we continue to sing and find some benefit for our minds and our hearts and our souls. Thousands of years later, the Psalms are unique because they assist the people of God in thinking and feeling after God. 
through these different realms that we'll read of just in a moment, these three different realms that display the supremacy of God, David, the author of this particular psalm, takes us with the kind of from heaven down to earth. That's the direction that we're, that we're moving. And, and it, it kind of ends almost in the same place again, circling back around. But he does it on the, on the path of a storm. So today, it's, this is a, a psalm of a storm, a stormy psalm, but it's also a calm psalm at the end. An alternate, uh, alternative outline uh, for us here maybe focuses more on the stormy aspect of this psalm. And you could say that the first realm or that first point has to do with being before the storm. The second point is in the storm, and the last point is after the storm. I want to orient you guys for this psalm as we come upon it. Um, we had one last chance as a, as a family to go have a, a California adventure before we moved out to Texas for our Texas adventure, and we went to the theme park in Disneyland in Anaheim. And uh, one of those rides that they have recently fixed up and kind of taken in, in a new direction was uh, soaring uh, around the world. It's in other, other parks of Disney, even around the world, too. But you enter this, this dark room after waiting a very long time out in the heat uh, and, and trying to just hope that it doesn't break down right when you get to the door. You know, and go, oh, I have to go find somewhere else now. I had a speed pass, right? You know, it didn't work, broken. But uh, so you finally get inside and you get into this dark room and you can't quite tell what's going to happen. You just know that, like, it's just really dark. And you feel like you're almost like in a theater. And so you get all in all of these seats, and you sit in rows, and there's a lap bar, and you're thinking, okay, it's not a normal movie. You're putting a lap bar on, right? Um, so then um, all of those seats that, that are, are, are connected somehow by this big device get raised up like this, and you, you kind of swivel forward. And so now everyone's kind of watching this big screen, but you're like in stories. So you're looking forward like this at this massive screen. I think it was, it was 3D, and it was kind of like curved almost like this. And then, then, then you saw the light. Then it was beautiful, and it was this picture, uh, motion picture, of, of soaring around the world. And you felt like you didn't see anybody else around you. You didn't see anybody in front of you, above you. All you saw was like, there's an iceberg, and I wonder if I'm going to hit it. You know, it's like you're just soaring over this. And so there's beautiful footage uh, of all over the world in these different places. You're going over the Great Wall of China, the, the Sydney Harbor in Australia, the Matterhorn in Switzerland is a, over a dozen other uh, breathtaking sights. Not only the sights, but there were times where there are scents you could actually smell at different phases of, of the movie or whatever that you were watching. You could smell scents that would like, kind of be a, correlated with the sights that you were seeing. Uh, and, and so it brought this real full experience. And I hope that in, in a similar fashion, the Holy Spirit would help us as we soar over this psalm, to be able to see and to catch and to understand what it is that's happening here. So let's, let's listen to God's word. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. 
The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Three realms of the supremacy of God to awaken awe in the people of God. The first one comes at us this way. Praise God for his supremacy over heaven. In verses 1 and 2. And what do we have here in verses 1 and 2? We have a call to praise. But this isn't a normal call to praise. This is a really abnormal call to praise if you think about it. Here you have a man, David. It's a psalm of David. And who is he calling to praise? O heavenly beings. In the ESV, at least. It might say sons of God or sons of the mighty or something to that effect. So David is leading the angels in their heavenly duty. Why is fallen man telling unfallen angels to do their job the way that they're supposed to? Maybe the angels pause too long between their holies, and David said, say again, what does this heavenly worship scene have to do with what David is going to write about with this, this storm that gathers and goes over and passes over and just ravishes the, the land of Israel? Well, we're going to find out. If you look at the first word, ascribe to the Lord, you see it come up a few other times. Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. Uh, A synonym for this imperative or this command, another way of looking at it would be uh, to give or attribute or credit. So, So David is demanding that the heavenly beings acknowledge Yahweh, acknowledge the Lord as the eternal king. He cries out to them to recognize him the eternal, as the eternal king, and offer the glory that fits his majesty. He says to credit him with what he deserves. Give him what's his. Don't hold back. Give more. You who inhabit the glory of heaven attribute glory in heaven to the glory of heaven, God himself. In other words, you could take what Jesus taught us about prayer and flip it around. He says, do God's will in heaven as it ought to be done here on earth. Now, these literal uh, sons of God, as you might see it in, in your Bible, it's, it's sons of might, are most likely heavenly beings rather than false gods who are also high, according to man, or mighty ones in the land because of Verse 3 and verse 10, they kind of give us a little bit of help that we see that we're talking about a realm that's above the created realm. So we're talking about something being, being over and above where the God of glory is, enthroned in the heavenly throne. So he seems to be talking about beings that inhabit this, in hev- this heavenly throne room. 
with God where he is. But why does David call upon heavenly beings to do this? Why does he call upon them to give glory and strength, give, give him the glory due his name? Why does, he, why does he tell them to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness? Well, he knew something. He knew something of the holiness of God, and he knew something of the sinfulness of men. He knew something that God was worthy of, and maybe he was aware, painfully aware, that even the praise of men fell so, adic- so, so inadequately, uh, it just fell so short from what God deserves. He knew God enough, and he knew himself enough, and he calls the angels into action where he feels there has been a lack of ascription to God for being great. Maybe there have been others in the land who have described these storms as being a work of nature and not a work of God. And so he goes straight up to the top and he, and he commands the angels to give God the praise, give God the glory for what was his. He's so overwhelmed in the psalm. If you read through it, David is overwhelmed with the majesty of God. He, it's almost like he says this or pens this with a jaw dropped, right? Just, just down. And, and he's realizing that this display of the power of God is not normal. It arrested his attention. So he calls these angels to fulfill their role and their function as these divinely de- designated worship. Uh, worship team. They probably didn't need a rehearsal, did they, Chris? It's right, right into praise. Oh, that's what they were doing. Okay, continue on, right? It's good to give God praise. And there's, no, there's no way you can give God praise too high. That's what David is after. Now, to give glory to God is something you guys might hear. That's an expression sometimes that becomes hollowed out by not understanding what it truly signifies or means. So we need to understand what this means to give glory to God. You might think God dropped something. Here, let me pick that up for you. You might think God's lacking something, so we need, He needs us to fill Him up, make Him feel good about Himself. Um, maybe, maybe He needs something from us. We start to feel kind of important. Well, as much as Greek mythology might lead you to think that uh, that the gods in heaven need men's prayers for their strength, for their ability to, to have power, and that they get weak when men don't cry out to them. It's the opposite with God. You see in Greek mythology that, that they will uh, let, let wars happen and natural catastrophes and disasters happen on the earth just so that the people will give them prayer and praise so that they'll have strength. That is the opposite of what is happening with the Almighty God. He doesn't need anything from us. He is the God of glory, whether we give it to Him or not. So when it says to give glory to God, it's basically a recognition that God deserves all the glory, right? It's a recognition that you deserve the glory. You deserve the praise. The word glory or kavod in Hebrew, it literally means weighty or heavy. So you think of the glory of God, and it's, it's a weighty matter. 
It's a weighty thing. When you think of a contrast you see in Scripture where it talks about the chaff that's blown away, the insignificant dust that comes off the wheat when it's grinded and threshed at the threshing floor. You see the dust that, that, that weighs nothing on the scales. It's gone. And then you have the weightiness, the glory of God, full of substance. As a kid growing up, we were doing soccer tournaments all the time, and my go-to candy bar for a little bit of energy before or after a game or both, because uh, <laughs> I could do that as a kid, was the Snicker bar. And, and I, I came across this Snicker bar when I was older. It wasn't when I was a kid. I'd probably have a hard time remembering it or pronouncing it. But it, it didn't say Snickers anymore, and it's kind of like typical fashion, Snickers, all cool, red, red and blue. But it said substantialicious. Do anybody see that bar? No, it's kind of a long word. You're like, substantialicious. What it? And, I, and I read that, and you know, it was after I had heard somebody talking about the glory of God, and I was thinking, yes, this is a bar of glory right here. It has substance to it. It is good. It is rich. It's going to give me something that I can take with me, some energy. So the substantialicious, for some reason, it made me think of kavod. <laughs> and, and so when we think of the Lord we think of all of his, all of his qualities and his, and his characteristics and his attributes summed up together in all of his beauty and how it comes together. That's the glory of God. So give him the glory. Recognize him for those things. You know, it's kind of an interesting point here. Both earthly natural beings and heavenly supernatural beings are called to do the same thing. So you might think, oh, that's their role, they have to do it, or that's our role, but they don't have to do it. But look at Psalm 96, verse 7, 8, and 9. We've read these recently, but Psalm 96, verse 7. There's a little bit of copycat going on here in the Psalms. Psalm 96, verse 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, bring an offering, and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So it doesn't matter if you live in heaven. It doesn't matter if you live on earth. It doesn't matter if you're a fallen creature or one that is not fallen. It doesn't matter if you're an angel or a human being. You're called to do the same thing. Give God the glory. You're created. He's creator. Recognize Him for that. That's our role. That's what we do. So don't think for a moment, oh, this is about angels and I get to tune out because I'm not an angel. Well, someone's called me an angel, but that's a different story. Uh, this, is, this, this is for us just as much. So the principle remains in verses 1 and 2. If you think about it for a little bit, just think about it, press it a little bit further. If we're designed, just like angels, if we're designed to give God the praise that is due to Him, then if you think about it, we're not really living to the fullest until we do that. Isn't that right? You're not living to the fullness of your design as a creature of the Creator until you're living entirely for His glory. And that's almost like a freeing thought because whoever's thinking of Christianity or of following God as some slavish over-dutiful kind of thing, that obligation that we have to do, that's a lie from Satan. Satan would love for you to think that the more you take control of your life and look out for your self-esteem, then the better off you're going to be. But God says the more you look out for the, 
for esteeming him highly, then you're living to the fullness that you were designed for. Then comes peace. Then comes rest. Then comes joy that no one can rob because God's looking after you. And that's what we need to be encouraged with. Instead of robbing God's glory and taking some for ourselves, the pat on the back, the compliment that we've been longing to hear, or even the opposite, when we heard criticism and we didn't like it, you know what all of that is doing? It's just, it's just glory-mongering. You're just looking to rob God of His glory. You're looking for it to land on you, and you think that somehow it belongs with you. But it doesn't belong there, and it doesn't do any good to be there. So the heavenly beings, and by principle all earthly beings, are called to give to God, to give glory and strength to God, to give to God glory that He deserves, and to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This mighty storm that we're going to look at now needs to be understood that this is a mighty storm because it came by the might of God. It is powerful because there's a powerful God behind it. Don't for a moment give Mother Nature another, ooh, whoa. That belongs to God. Mother Nature would be unemployed if the Lord was not the boss. So, second realm, praise God for his supremacy over nature. Look at these verses one more time. So this is in the storm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Let's pause just there. So now we've come down out of the heavenly realm and clouds, and we're under these gathered, darkened clouds that are full, packed full with power, and they're about to pour down. They're about to pour down. Psalm 29 is, is a perfect psalm to preach and to meditate on in hurricane season. I mean, it just, it's just so appropriate because, I mean, I don't want a hurricane to come, but should the next thunderstorm come, Hopefully, every single time, there's a lightning bolt, and there is, there is the shake of thunder. At the same exact time, all of us are going to think about Psalm 29 and give glory to God right away. We say, boom, this is what I was designed for. The storm is God's, and right away, we can just praise Him. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that storms do, so it gets our attention in more ways than one, but we need to get, have our attention given to God in the right way. Uh, the, the last time I, I saw a thunderstorm kind of come through was when we were on our way back with the college students from a, a Waco day, and we were doing some things in Waco, and we were driving back and took Maggie, our six-year-old daughter, along with us, and she's sitting in the car next to me in and, and, and the, the middle seat, and I mean, we're just seeing, it's like, it's a light show. It's, at, it's later at night. I mean, it's almost like we could feel the thunder inside the car. The, the rain is hitting so hard that we're like going down to a crawl. Um, and Maggie is just latched onto my arm, just holding super tight. She said, Daddy, Daddy, this is not safe. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, but I think Jonathan Marsh is a good driver, so we'll be fine. <laughs> we got home. So. Um, and, and so this is, this is just like such a demonstration of, of power. And, and we're just in awe. Uh, and, then, and then subsequent to that, there was this last storm that hit, and I'm in the garage kind of working on some things. I just left the garage door open, and I'm just watching the rain pour and just go crazy down the street. And just hearing 
hearing thunder, seeing lightning, and, and, and every time just being kind of terrified, but at the same time just in awe and just seeing this power that no man can, can just make that happen or could emulate that or be credited for that kind of demonstration of power. James Boyce says, to appreciate this psalm, we have to get out in the fields, watch the majesty of some ferocious storm, and recall that God is in the storm directing it. Charles Spurgeon maybe says it a little better. Sometimes he does that. Just as the eighth psalm needs to be read by moonlight, looking up at the stars, when the stars are bright, as the 19th psalm needs the rays of the rising sun to bring out its beauty, so this can be best rehearsed beneath the black wing of tempest by the glare of the lightning or amid that dubious dusk which heralds the war of elements. The verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. God is everywhere conspicuous and all the earth is hushed by the majesty of his presence. So look at these verses. Verses 3 to 9, I just want to give you kind of a storm watch a little bit, if you will. Uh, verses 3 and 4 describe this storm gathering over the waters, most likely is referring to the Mediterranean Sea, which is a, a large body of water that is, that is alongside of kind of the belly or the right-hand right side of, of the land of Israel. So you've got, you've got storms that are gathering over the Mediterranean Sea. The God of glory thunders, the, the Lord over many waters, powerful, full of majesty. Then you see in verses 5 and 6, they picture the storm making its way over Lebanon and Syrian, and that's the northern part of Israel. And you see that it does some damage inland, but it's not done there. Verses 7 and 8, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, so it makes it down to the wilderness, which is in Kadesh the southern portion of Israel. So Israel, as a nation, just got a storm that moved right through them and got everybody's attention. And it just shook the land, literally. Displacing people, causing fires, causing premature birth in deer, uh, doing these different things that just made mountains look like they were skipping away, like young ox, a wild ox or a calf. You see... The, the power of the Lord, when it says the God of glory thunders, the God of glory thunders. This is the God of all glory who deserves that glory, deserves credit for this. The voice of the Lord is powerful, emphasizing in this psalm that it's not nature's power, but that it's the command of the Lord. It's the command of the Lord, and that's where it gets its power and its majesty. It's packed full with majesty. Verses 5 and 7, uh, 5 to 7, show this movement of the storm over the hill country of the land of Israel. Look at those verses there. It breaks the cedars. Now, the cedars of Lebanon were known for how big they were. These, these massive cedars, these cedars of Lebanon, they were um, actually uh, accessed for all the things that Solomon in his day, when he was building up the temple, trying to make um, these gardens and, and, and all of these beautiful buildings, he, he chose the choicest wood, the best wood where there was a most abundance, and it was the cedars of Lebanon, because they were known for their majesty. They were known for their, their, their width, their, their height, 
They were strong. They were beautiful. But what do you see here? You see God turning them into toothpicks. Right? He, he, is, he is breaking the cedars. He's taking these images of just strength. I mean, if you just stand at the foot of one of these trees, we did it in the kind of the uh, Sequoia National Park um, when we were in hiking in California. And these the sequoias that you stand at the bottom of, like, you know, General Sherman. They give them all the trees, the biggest trees. They give them these, like, generals' names. And, and you stand before it, and you just feel like such a dwarf. You're like, I'm a squirrel. No, I'm the nut that the squirrel wanted. And, and you just feel like, is there a smaller place? I'm the dust on the nut that the squirrel has come down the tree to. You know, I'm just so tiny compared to this tree. It's massive. And there are certain trees that, that were in the way of a road. So what they do? Just carve out. They just kind of chunked out a big piece of it. The cars just drive right underneath trees. And uh, there's like a little, little bridge. That's a live tree just right there. And, you know, a lot of these trees had like these burn marks on them. And I thought, what was that all about? People trying to light one on fire and, or something like that? No, it's from the lightning. Lightning would strike these things and just put a nice charred uh, corner or edge on them because they had been there for a long time and they've been through a lot of storms. But this is what you see, these, these, these icons of strength and power just looming over everyone. And God just comes in with the storm and just, and just shatters them. It breaks them apart. I mean, he just speaks and he just brings what we think as strong down to nothing to make it weak. So the forests are, are stripped bare. Verses 8 and 9, finally, the thunderstorm is carried over the desert country. This is, this is the area where, where Israel kind of approached the Holy Land, and they were coming into the Holy Land, the land of promise. Remember, they were coming into this place. And in Numbers thirteen twenty six, you see a reference to coming into the wilderness of Kadesh, it's in the southern portion of Israel. So this storm has made, made some ground. But in this place where the Israelites would have recalled their wilderness wandering in this area, you see the voice of the Lord flashing forth flames of fire. That's probably a way to describe lightning back then. His voice makes the wilderness tremble, shake I mean, it's almost kind of like the wilderness. You think how barren of a land, but you see this barren land almost like just trembling before the Creator, just about to buckle and seize before His presence through this storm. This shows His great control in great things and in small things. And what do you see at the end of verse 9? The end of verse 9, He strips the forest bare, and in His temple... All cry glory. Now, there's some debate as to whether this is the heavenly temple, a glory shout or cry from heaven, or is this the temple that's right there in Jerusalem, and there's a glory cry from that temple. Well, what we've learned from verses 1 and 2 is it could be both, and it's fitting to be both. But most likely, because of the nature of this storm, kind of developing over the, the waters, coming inland, having its ruin and wreckage going from north to south, making its way over and by near Jerusalem, likely this is the literal temple. The people gathered there, and what do they know to do? To do what the angels do. Give glory to God. So these words, the voice of the Lord, they come up a few times, about seven times. And you kind of wonder why the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. 
Well, this is really a poetic device and a way to speak of how much authority the Lord has. You think in Scripture of the voice of the Lord, what has He been able to do and what has He done with just a word? He said, let there be light. And it was. He didn't have to to reach out and pull two things together and infuse something and create. He just spoke. He just spoke and it was. And you see like a picture of, of not just in creation at the beginning, but even in the Gospels. And you see Jesus over the waters with the frightened, terrified disciples in the boat. And all he has to do is say, peace, be still. And all the tempests, all of the windstorm that's over the Sea of Galilee just goes flat like glass. We were out on a, on a dock, Maggie and my dog and I, and we were kind of taking a walk out there. And, um, and I was telling Maggie about how, hey, remember that one story when Jesus calmed the, calmed the sea? And she goes, peace! She's like, it didn't stop. <laughs> and I was like, well, it doesn't quite work that way. I mean, when Jesus says it, it has to stop. You know, when we say it, you know, we just want it to stop. Um, but, you know, here comes the waves. And she, and she was just kind of having fun with it. But she remembered. She remembered. All he had to do was just, hey, calm down, elements. Right? <laughs> so the voice of the Lord is powerful. But not only in creation, but in recreation. When he recreates someone's heart, 2 Corinthians 4.6 says this. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when God calls someone to be saved, and he is calling to them with the gospel, the good news, is there a way to resist his call? Not when he calls for salvation. When the Lord calls someone to be saved, there is no way that any amount of unbelief or opposition or failure or any human element can stand in his way. When God calls someone to be saved, they are saved. And that's the way the Lord works through his word. That's how people are saved, is by hearing. That's how light can come into the darkness of a human heart, is when God says, let there be light inside that heart. We don't know what's happening. We can't see it. We want people to be saved, and we try and we try and we try, but my encouragement would be to you, trust the Lord as to when he awakens darkened hearts, but stick to his word. Stick to his word. Stay there and pray. The Lord would do his work in recreation. But he also has some things to say in judgment, the voice of the Lord. Let's look at the next two verses, the final two verses in our last realm over humanity. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So we talked about the storm and the orientation of the storm. This is after the storm. Kind of what we're enjoying outside, some pleasant days. We see a little bit of the temperature change and the crispness change and humidity change. There, there is change after the storm. And the picture we get here is one of just absolute peace. You go from something being so violent, so terrifying, so terrible, to something so calm, so peaceful, and so beautiful. You look at this storm and you go, wow, everything was shaken. Everything was shaken except for God. You see him sitting on his throne. 
He wasn't, he wasn't shaken. He wasn't stirred. Um, he wasn't tossed by the wind. He sits there enthroned over not only that storm, but it says uh, over the flood. Over the flood. This is a reference back to the flood. Something that we could you know, probably miss, thinking, oh, maybe it just means a lot of water, but this deluge or this flood is only spoken of back in Genesis 6 to 9 with the flood of Noah's day. And what was the purpose of that flood? It was judgment. It was to hit the reset button on humanity. It was to start over with where creation had taken this plan of God and gone into sin and sin and further sin. And so this flood comes to bring judgment. God's going to restart, start over. And so he protects Noah and his family in the ark a mini picture of redemption, of rescue, of preservation of life when not needing it, or not deserving it, but definitely needing it. And, And here is God sitting enthroned over the flood, everyone being wiped off of the earth. And he continues to sit there as king, as boss, as large, as creator, as one who's in control. So storms may function as like mini floods, they may remind us of who is in control when there was that big flood. And so it should point us heavenward and go, oh, I don't know what the Lord is up to, but he has all the power in the world to just wipe us clean, to bring judgment, and he has every right to do so, unless if we're protected by faith, and not the ark, but in the Lord Jesus himself. So he's able to do something that's pretty in, in, Incredible here. Look, it says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The Lord does what with his strength? He gives it. Now, just for a moment, think about what this whole psalm is about. This whole psalm is about a demonstration of God's strength and his power and his might, right? You see things that you're like, whoa, everybody was terrified. I mean, it was shattering the, the, the cedars. It was, it was lightning and fire, shaking the wilderness, all of these things. And there's the Lord just chilling on his throne, and he has this prayer. Here's the prayer. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. And we go, well, you know, you don't understand. The, I've just been so weak lately. I can't do it. There, there's this issue in my life. It has bondage over me. There, there's something that's going on that I, you wouldn't understand. It's too big. There's this person that just, they just, every time, they have, it's almost like they have control over me because of the way they treat me. And you just pause for a moment. You just reread the psalm and you go, wait, what kind of strength do you have? You have the borrowed strength of the Lord. You have the strength that he has issued to you to overcome those things. I just think for a moment we need to remember that that strength is the Lord's, but he gives of his strength to his people. And then finally, may the Lord bless his people with peace. It's almost kind of like, you know, after the storm clears out, the birds come out from hiding because they've been finding some place to hide, right? There's that glisten on all the plant life 
and it's shining so bright because the sun has peeked through and is it's just kind of bouncing off of all the, all the mo- water molecules. The sky is, is clear and clearing. It's crisp air. It's bright with sun. It's just peaceful. And this peace the Lord blesses his people with. It's almost kind of like seeing that rainbow at the end, right? We should be blessed to know that God is not only in control of every storm, every natural disaster, but everything else as well. And you say, my life is a storm. My life is a tumult. My life is filled with problems, filled with broken relationships, filled with pain, filled with hatred. There's no peace But with the Lord, there is peace. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That says two things. Those who are wicked, those who are opposed to God, don't experience peace. But it also says that there is peace for those who are not wicked. And the way that God goes about this is by sending his son to die in our place, what we have celebrated here this morning, so that we could be brought near by the blood of Christ. And there is true peace. So, what I've prayed for this message to have an effect on my life and on this church's life is that we would just walk away going, man, God is awesome. He, he thunders in glory. He's worthy of all glory. He's arrayed in holiness. His glory thunders. His voice is powerful. He is full of majesty. All in his temple cry glory. He sits enthroned as king forever. He gives strength and peace. But maybe you still sit there with an awe problem. Maybe you still sit there unimpressed by God. What's going to help? How can this awe problem change. I want to end just by pointing at a verse in Mark 16. I don't know if you guys know how the Gospel of Mark ends. It ends kind of abrupt, and it ends in a weird way, frankly. Or, or does it? Let me point to you, Mark 16, 8. Now keep in mind, Jesus has just been tried and crucified by men, before men, wicked men. Humanity rising against its creator and its savior. And here's wisdom, or sorry, wisdom, women, same word, right? Uh, here's women that are watching all of this. Those who are like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, following him. They're seeing him at the cross. And then who are the first ones to arrive on the scene at the, at the resurrection of Christ? It's the women. Verse 4, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place 
where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Listen to verse 8. This is technically the end of the book of Mark. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. Why would the good news end with fear? Why would the good news of the, the one who came to change our awe problem end with this kind of trembling, astonishment, seizing them? They, had, they were saying nothing, for they were afraid. They had been arrested by a thought. They had just spoken to an angel. They had just seen their Savior crucified. They have just gone to the tomb, and they've just been told that he's not here and that he's risen. They're absolutely beside themselves. Who has done this? No one except the Lord. Jesus alone has this power, this ability, this faithfulness to his word that he will do this, and he has done this. And the women... Look in and see and, and have this reaction of awe. You could just turn back the pages and look through the Gospel of Mark, and you see from the very beginning, chapter 1, people are astonished by what he said. People are amazed by what he did. People are looking at how he spoke to the leaders of their day, and they're just shocked. They're looking at the miracles and the, and the command that he had over demons and demon possession, and they're amazed. They're blown away. It's awe, 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 all the way through the good news. And guys, that's what we need. We need more awe in our celebration of the good news. We need to be able to look at the Lord and go, here is the incarnate voice of the Lord, Jesus Christ. He receives my glory. He deserves my glory. And I am in awe of him. And Father, forgive me if I am in awe of anyone, anything other than him. This God of glory thunders. Let me pray and hopefully we'll have time for our last song. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for showing us something of your truth in your word. May we be, in one sense, maybe caught off guard by how awesome you are, how frightening you are, how terrifying you are, how powerful you are, and help us to understand and know that peace that we can experience right next to your power. God, help Lakeside to be a people who has a kind of trembling about our step before you. Help us in this place to cry glory and help us never to forget that it took something to bring us close to you that we might have peace. It was the death of what was most precious to you. Who was most precious to you? Your beautiful one, your beloved one, your son, Jesus. Amen.